Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your ever-curious host, Jenny Love. Today's episode is all about nutrient management. I grew up on a large farm that had an agronomist on call for all types of fertilizer and soil questions. It's interesting to me how small flower farmers like us are left to fend for ourselves entirely, and rarely do we get an agronomist to pay any attention to us. Even more rare is finding an agronomist that has something besides commodity crops in his or her wheelhouse. When I first started exploring regenerative growing practices and nutrient management, particularly Korean natural farming, I found a wealth of information in the cannabis growers community. Seriously, there are some amazing podcasts centered entirely on regenerative cannabis production. I'll link to a few in the show notes in case you're curious about those too. Somewhere along the lines, I stumbled upon Bryant Mason on Instagram. He goes by the handle The Soil Doctor. Bryant is a certified crop advisor with more than a decade of experience helping cannabis growers maximize yields and identify the nutrient bottlenecks in their systems and soils. He's also purchased and rehabbed abandoned land, brought the soil back to life, and planted a kick-ass regenerative orchard. Why I pulled Bryant in particular into a conversation for the podcast is because cannabis is ultimately a flowering specialty crop, just like what we grow. Sort of, kind of, not entirely. Uh, (laughs) It might be a stretch, but I figured at least he would know something about um, high production flowering plants. And then also his experience as an orchardist would apply to our woody production in our niche industry too. Ultimately, Bryant is just really, really, really good at making soil science sound simple. That is such a rare trait, am I right? Definitely give Bryant a follow on Instagram so you can tap into his great videos on there. He's at soil underscore doctor. There's a link in the show notes, of course. I hope you're as jazzed by this conversation as I was. I asked Brian to break down nitrogen and calcium in particular for us. Turns out nitrogen is a three-parter, and fish emulsion may not be the best source like so many of us believe. As for calcium, this nutrient we should all be paying a lot more attention to as flower growers. It's the nutrient most responsible for strong, healthy stems. Calcium does not diffuse through the soil to plant roots, so we need to be more aware of it as growers and be applying it more regularly. So much food for thought in this episode. I'm going to see if I can get Bryant to come do a live Q&A follow-up over on the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network at some point. If you're not already a member of the network, membership is just five bucks annually and you get heaps and heaps of great resources. So make sure to sign up there so that you don't miss the Q&A when it happens. Before we jump in here, I just wanted to take a moment to thank those of you who have taken a moment to leave a review for the podcast. So a quick shout out to Clifton Springs Gardens, Celadon Hill, North Star Farm, and Robert Atterbury for your reviews. Keep them coming, you guys. I love hearing your feedback. Alrighty, let's get into this fascinating chat with Bryant Mason, the Soil Doctor. 
welcome Brian Mason, the soil doctor, <laughs> to the No-Till Flowers podcast. I've been following you on Instagram for a few years now, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say to some of my burning questions about soil health and nutrient management, um, and for listeners to get to know you a little bit. So welcome, Brian. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. So you're a certified crop advisor for over a decade now, I think. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background? And you're also a grower, so just dive in. Like, pretend like I know nothing about you, which I know sure. very little about you, to be honest. So. <laughs> so yeah, that's fine. It. That's fine. So yeah, I'm a certified crop advisor through the American Association of Agronomy, which is really just a certification that allows me to. Um, work with growers, and I specialize in organic nutrient management. So um, there's a number of different facets of agriculture, but I very much specialize in nutrient management. And I also have a peach orchard. So I'm an orchardist, and I live on the western slope of Colorado. Um, and I planted 800 peach trees last year, and I have another few hundred coming, and then I'm putting in a uh, sort of experimental acre of different fruit nut species that I'm excited to cultivate this year as well. So I'm expanding my my own farm. Uh, my, my history is mostly in growing vegetables and mm. my consulting practice is actually mostly in cannabis. Um, so I do a lot of nutrient management where I help uh, cannabis growers reuse their soil round after round. Um, because, oh, cool. Yeah, so there's most, most growers are using a peat-based media um, so not like a, a topsoil, sand, silt, and clay soil that most of your listeners are probably growing in, but a peat-based media. And cannabis as a heavy feeder depletes that pretty quickly. And so I help them re-amend the, the media every round so they can continue to reuse it round after round. Oh, that's awesome because peat is such a perishable resource for us all. And and if they just keep dumping it over and over again after each grow cycle, then they're, you know, they're really depleting our bugs. And it's awesome to hear that you can help them continue to use it. That's that's a fantastic service to our ecosystem. And that's exactly the way I like to think about it is it's it's an extremely valuable resource. So we should treat it that way. Yeah, I amen to that. I I try so hard to get rid of peat in my own cycle, but sometimes, man, I'm not gonna lie, I'm I'm so dependent on it in my potting soil because I I was trained classically as a horticulturalist and that's what I know. And then every time I try to use something else, you know, like rice hulls or uh, cocoa coir or whatever, I'm always like, Ugh, I'm just not as successful with my transplants. So I'm still stuck. I have to admit, I'm still yeah, stuck. <laughs> it just it does it works so well. It's such a magical yeah. substance. So uh, that is kind of the the crux. But if we can use it with the mindset that it's extremely valuable and reuse it over and over for years, um, then I think it's it's totally reasonable. Yeah. I, I like to think that way too. And also with transplants in particular, I mean, this doesn't relate um, in cannabis, I'm sure they're growing in, in large pots and, and it's a whole different story. But um, for flower farmers on a smaller scale, we start transplants in small little seed cells, um, trays or uh, in soil blocks and so forth. Um, and I like to just always think about the fact that that soil is going out into our own, you know, native soil into our planting beds. And at least the peat moss in that capacity is going towards the contribution to, you know, our own ecosystem. It's not like it's just getting tossed away into some, you know, rubbish bin or whatever. So it's, it is still contributing. It's just <laughs> not left in its bog where it should be. <laughs> yeah. Not going to the landfill. Yes. Amen to that. Thank goodness. So, um, 
So you've got a lot of different diverse backgrounds there, which is super cool. And I'm excited that you have this orchardist background because so many flower farmers, myself included, we grow a lot of shrubs and woodies, trees. We call them woodies in my in my niche. Um, so we have a lot of trees and shrubs that we use for cutting off of, which is a little different than production of, of fruit. But I think it probably requires similar nutrient balancing as you would for an orchard in terms of like you want this very highly productive woody crop um, that's really healthy and capable of putting on lots and lots of growth over and over again season after season. So I'm going to start there actually which wasn't quite where I planned on starting but let's do it. Let's roll with it. Um, How are you I know you started with your orchard as like pretty depleted soil that was like an old junkyard or something right if i remember from instagram yeah you know it was um that was a good observation so the the we bought a farm that hadn't seen any cultivated crop for probably 50 or 60 years and it hadn't been irrigated it was really just um dusty a dusty field and when we were looking at the farm i remember walking up to the highest point and it was really windy it was a windy day and i could I could see soil blowing away. Uh, so it, uh, it was, and then yeah, there were these massive piles of of trash. It wasn't a, a formal junkyard, but it was definitely an informal one. For <laughs> so, yeah, farmer's junkyard. Yeah, yeah. So we filled there's yeah. these thirty yard dumpsters, that, and we filled I think sixteen of those full of trash. Oh um, my I got I brought irrigation onto the property and grew a, a multi species cover crop for two years in a row, just to just to get irrigation on it and to kind of get yeah. the soil, get something covering the soil and to really start the biological process. Um, and then, so I did that for two years. And then I, I before I put in the um, peach trees, I also did a lot of soil amending and uh, I spread manure and things like that. So, you know, I think that I wouldn't say it was depleted from in a traditional sense. And I, I think actually my, the foundation of my soil is really good. I have a oh, nice. Yeah, I, I don't think it had been um, overly tilled. Obviously, it hadn't been really touched. There were some areas of compaction and just, you know, it had been adulterated in sort of a non-traditional way. Um, so I feel really proud to, to sort of bring it back into production. But I actually think it's a pretty good soil. Uh, hard to tell if that's a result of my um, cover cropping and mm. and amending, or if it's actually just inherently a really uh, productive soil. But in any case, it's, it's actually grown really well for the last several years. So I feel really fortunate about that. Awesome. Congratulations. That's no small feat to take really old abandoned land and bring it into production relatively quickly. So congrats. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. In my part of the country, irrigation is really the name of the game. So um, mm. that's kind of, in my opinion, the the productivity of soils, especially in the arid west, is really a function of of how well they're irrigated. So I think mm, that's where I put true. most of my attention. Uh, even though okay. I focus on nutrient management, um, an observation I've had for a decade now is that it's really all about moisture management because mm. if, if moisture management isn't meticulously managed, um, then it, it's the, the, nu- the nutrition sufficiency and balance doesn't really matter because that's ultimately how plants take up nutrients. So yeah, and biology, if the biology can't drink, then the plants don't eat, you know, at the end of the day. That's right. That's right. So I actually tell that right up front. And I, and and a lot of times people don't have control if you're not irrigated, but most people, I do think, 
you know, small specialty production have irrigation. And so I think that that is like the most important thing. Mm. I love that you said that because we had an episode on the podcast here um, just a couple episodes back in season three about pulse watering. Have you heard about pulse watering before? It's a very applicable to orchards. Um, I feel like it would be Is great. that like a continuous irrigation method where you just do like maybe 15 pulses a day? Or yeah, something? yeah, 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 yeah. It's You should listen to it if you have a chance. I, I interviewed a, a flower farmer from Australia named, named Emma Horswell. Um, and in Australia, you know, like water is... Uh, super challenging in many ways. And so the orchard growers, the nut growers, I think in particular, um, in Australia decades ago, developed this uh, practice. Yeah, it's practice. System practice? I don't know. But it's called pulse watering. And basically, yeah, they irrigate um, for six or seven times each day, but just for short little pulses of water. And what happens is that that creates the the capillary pool through the soil profile to the to the horizon, like across instead of down, you know, so it like spreads out more. Um, And they were able to use a lot less water in the orchards, um, in the nut groves. And then Emma, learned that technique from a dahlia grower. And then that dahlia grower and then Emma have applied it to flower farming. And now we're all in the flower farming world, a buzz about pulse watering. So if you haven't checked it out yet, definitely uh, look into it. But one, the reason I bring this up, and it's just to amplify what you said, is um, at my farm, we struggle. We have very little water because I have a very shallow well, or not a shallow well, just an unproductive well. And I have a very silty loam soil, heavy on the silt, light on the loam. And uh, so the, it just drains away so fast and I can rarely be able to get enough uh, water out to my crops. So for years now, I didn't realize my crops were under water stress, even though we get rain here and, you know, I try to irrigate. Um, I do irrigate. And last year I adopted pulse watering. And I am here to say, like, holy moly. <laughs> I had such a different in growth patterns in plants that I've been growing for years uh, with that pulse watering because it just keeps such an even amount of water in this in the soil profile at all times. So it yeah, that's to testify that yeah, nutrients well, are only available if it's wet or yeah, not exactly. wet but moist. moist you yeah. know, I mean, yeah. yeah. So the what's interesting about that that sort of lines up with my observations is I, I'm a huge fan of what I call maintaining. Uh, consistent soil moisture. And so this is, I mean, obviously pulse watering is, is unique in, in just how it's done, but it definitely aligns with that idea of maintaining consistent moisture. And what I, what I did in my orchard is most people in my area irrigate once a week and they do a 12 hour Mm -hmm. irrigation cycle once a week. And that, that is a lot of water. Over it's a lot hours. of water oh all at goodness. once. And it's not a lot of water for an arid 90 degree low humidity week. Yeah. I mean, for any for any plant. And obviously there's this kind of idea that perennial crops are, are deeper rooted. And I was always told you wanna um you don't want to water them continuously because you want their root systems to develop deeper. I actually yep. just think point think that that might be somewhat of a myth. What I observed, so what I did is I irrigated every other day for just, you know, two hours. So I was irrigating the same amount and I saw so much bigger and I swear it was from just maintaining consistent soil moisture. 
And I would go out there every single day with a soil probe. And, and I, I recommend this to every single grower of any different crop. You, you get a soil probe and every single morning you go out and you probe your soil six to 12 inches deep and, and it takes a perfect soil core and you can feel the soil all the way down through the soil profile. Oh. And you can get intimately familiar with what different moisture levels feel like. And yeah. with pulse watering, it's, you know, you're, it's going to be consistently moist, but still, I think it's really important to have that, that sort of tactile, um, understanding of, of moisture. And so every yeah. single morning with my, you know, I, I have a little one-year-old daughter, I put her on my back and we would go test the moisture every single morning. And I would determine my irrigation cycles based on that. And that has made a world of difference. So it's sort of like pulse watering high frequency location, maintain consistent moisture and never let the roots, um, I mean, make, give the roots what they need for photosynthesis every minute of the day. I love that. Right. Yeah. No. And I love the idea of the soil probe because I've got one and I use it anytime I'm soil testing, but I never thought to like, just take it out there and like poke around a while. Like that's awesome. Yeah. I would, I would highly (laughs) recommend it. Um, so, and then I have a bunch of, now I've actually started automating, so I'm really into tensiometers, which is a, I'm not, are you familiar with mm-hmm. a tensiometer? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, for listeners though, go ahead and explain. Yeah, just in case. There's two different ways to measure soil moisture. One is volumetric water content, which measures how, how much of the pore space is filled with water. And usually those are devices that have uh, like electrical, they're metal probes that you stick into the soil. It takes uh, uh, electrical conductivity reading that's translated into water content. There's a totally separate way to measure water, which is um, using something called a tensiometer. And it's looking at what's called water potential. And it's essentially how much energy it takes for the roots to extract water from the soil. So it's actually a little bit more accurate in terms of what the plants are seeing and what they're experiencing because it's an, it's, a, it's an energy measurement of how much energy it takes them to suck water up. And so when it's dry, it takes in more energy. So a tensiometer, um, there's a number of different brands of tensiometers, but the device is water is measuring water potential, uh, which I really like. So yeah. there's kind of a reason to use both of them, but it's a little nuanced. In general, I put tensiometers all over my farm and I, mm. as I'm probing and feeling the soil, I'm also looking at the actual meters and it just is another way to, to quantify moisture. Yeah. And it's also going to teach you to eventually just probably be able to like sort of feel the soil and understand what the reading would have been. Like it's, it's just, you're becoming super intimate with your soil in that capacity and how it works and functions, which is what every farmer should do ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I haven't grown a lot of flowers, um, besides just little pollinator strips and things and, and, um, cover crop flowers. And, but I imagine if it's like, most other crops I've grown, they like moisture. And so I, I really like that mm-hmm. pulse watering idea. I think it's a really smart idea. Um, yeah. And it is the thing about flower production is that you have to have this really healthy plant, you know, to even get to the point where you have a really healthy, vibrant flower. Like they're not going to produce a healthy, vibrant flower unless the plant itself didn't go through a lot of stress and hasn't had a lot of pest pressure and all of that. So mm-hmm. it is, it is, um, they do like water, um, but there's that fine balance between having too much water, obviously, yeah. as, as as usual. But one of the things that's interesting, particularly in our woody production and our in our shrubs and so forth, um, a lot of those shrubs we just need them to put on 
massive amounts of growth. So this could translate to cannabis. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically it's a perennial crop. Um a lot of these things get cut down to the knees essentially every winter. And then we want this like huge flush of growth off of it for long branches, you know, four or five foot branches um, the next summer. And so providing enough even moisture in that capacity is super helpful Absolutely. and important for them to be able to do that kind of growth. So, Absolutely. yeah, it's it's similar to that, I think. Um yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, cannabis, I mean, fruit trees, anything. I think water early and water consistency is important. The only thing I'll add, though, is that um, everyone has a different soil te texture. Let me, I was going to say mm -hmm. soil type, but really what I'm trying to say is texture, percentages of sand, silt, and clay. And oftentimes that's really hard to discern without an actual laboratory test. And mm -hmm. so most people I talk to say they have a, a clay heavy soil, um, when in reality, um, sometimes that the particle sizes are, are um, can be tricky. So I have a sandy loam soil, but if you felt it, you would feel you would think that I had a clay heavy soil mm -hmm. um, because mm -hmm. there is clay in it and it feels clay. And it's amazing that when you change textures, even subtly, the drainage characteristics change quite dramatically. So the only thing I would again using the probe is I would just really make sure there wasn't any um, oversaturation because mm. that can be even more problematic than underwatering is just creating an anaerobic zone, um, which really will only happen in a poorly draining soil. Most, most soils, especially if they're no-till actually. Will yeah. I was going to say structure. a hard pan, yeah, <laughs> a hard know. pan would create that, but yeah, hopefully in a no-till situation. Like a, a really dense clay soil um, will develop good porosity and good drainage mm. capacity if it's not overly disturbed. So um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but yeah, and if it has, yeah, go ahead. Do, and organic matter makes a big difference too, right? Do you think in terms of drainage? Yeah, I think, yes, I, I do think organic matter helps a lot, but I, I think what's probably more important is lack of disturbance because those channels mm -hmm. that develop, um, even soils low in organic matter will drain really well if they have, if they have good porosity and good aggregate stability and, and pore structure, which is more of a physical characteristic of soil that's hard to quantify, um, but is managed more just through cultivation practices. And uh, that's not to say, you know, no disturbance. I just think it's, it's good to just understand your soil texture and really use that feeling, uh, feeling the moisture as, as much as possible. Let's just call it the probe. To start to unravel, if that's happening, then you work backwards to figure out why. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. And I also love that you pointed out about you might think you have a clay soil, but you don't really necessarily because that was me. Yeah. Hey, everybody, that was me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for the first, I'd say five years, I was growing at my farm, and I it seemed like I had really poor drainage. There was a lot of puddling and stuff like that. Um, and I swore that I had bad clay soil with poor drainage. And the reality is, no, I just had, at the time, I was heavily tilling. And I had heavily tilled soil with a hard pan under it. <laughs> and it looked like complete, you know, like pulverized clay particles. Um, and I had no idea. And then eventually I got wise. I got a soil test and I got a um, texture test and paste test and everything. And it was like, oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, great. <laughs> it's completely different soil that I thought I had, yeah, which yeah. was very so ironic other, to me. The other thought on that pulse irrigation is if you have a clay heavy soil, I would actually increase the 
um, the gap between the pulses, because mm. if you think about soil, it's kind of like a syringe in the sense that it's either going to, the pore space is either going to be filled with water or air. And so it's the oxygen is equally important. Gas exchange through the, the pore space is equally important to water. So you want to give it enough time for that water to drain out um, and reach field capacity, because if you maintain saturation and it's not draining fast enough, uh, you can create, you know, gas exchange issues. So as the water mm. drains, it pulls oxygen in. And so you want to give it enough time to do that. That would be my only concern in a, in a really clay heavy soil. Mm. Oh, that's a great point. I was just having that conversation the other day with somebody else about how much air you really need in the soil. And most most growers don't even think about air. They think about nutrients. They think about water. Um, oh, they think about is, light. Air like but air is like water. the last thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for, for the microbes, but also for roots, um, I mean, just mm -hmm. respiration across all biological yeah. kingdoms. So, I mean, the, the key is, yeah, you want to just alternate between water and air as frequently as possible, in my opinion. So, but that again depends on the rate of, of drainage. The other thing you can do is a ring mm. test. I, I used to do this actually. There's yeah, what's these, that? There's these um, infiltration rings. They're about four inches in diameter, and okay. you can just Google infiltration soil infiltration tests, and YouTube videos have all these different old NRCS agents and things who are doing these tests. They're very basic. You pour a, a certain amount of water in, and you time it, and you can just see how quickly your water's draining and compare it to um, different averages. It's a pretty yeah, rudimentary okay. test, but it's a, it's a controlled test that really tells you what your, your drainage, your infiltration rate is. Okay, cool. I'm yeah. going to look that up. And I'll, once I find that, I will put a link in the show notes to yeah. it because <laughs> that's a new one for me. Um, so I love this conversation and I am definitely continuing this thread, but I want to tie it in a little bit to why I wanted to chat with you for the podcast was about like nutrient management. And so to kind of like, you know, set the stage here, a grower who's seeing lack of vigor, we'll call it, <laughs> in their crop may be like, oh, I need to apply nitrogen and this will make it better. But maybe the first thing to do is start with saying like, is the moisture level correct? Maybe it's too wet. Maybe it's too dry. Maybe it's not consistent moisture. So we kind of hit on that because moisture is the thing that's going to unlock the nutrients for the rest of this process. So assuming we have uh, been good observant little farmers and we've uh, paid attention to our water cycling in our soil and we know the water's, the water's okay. So now we may have a nutrient deficiency. There's also a million other things that could be going on, but let's start with a nutrient deficiency. Most people's instinct at least in the flower farming world, might be to pull out the fish emulsion and hit those babies with a, a foliar feed or whatever just to get them some nitrogen. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, so that's that's kind of where I started to, um, you know, when I was growing vegetables, it was kind of like the the diet was like fish and kelp. Mm -hmm. Sort of like my, it's all I would ever feed, really. Yeah. So there are, there are, many more essential nutrients um, beyond nitrogen and fish has more than nitrogen. Um, but my general approach, agronomically speaking, to achieve the best yield and the best plant health is to identify what is, what is missing and, and apply that. So to, be, mm. to use more precision in nutrient management will save a lot of money in the long term, um, 
but it'll ultimately lead to better crop health. So for example, if you're, if you're, plants actually have enough nitrogen, um, but they're met, but they're missing, let's say potassium or calcium, um, and you apply fish, you're, you're going to give them a little bit of calcium, a little potassium in that fish, but you're actually going to be creating an excess potentially of the things that already has enough of. And in agriculture across the board, excess nutrient excesses are, are often, or, or maybe the majority of the time they're, they're the bigger issue and not a, not a deficiency of something. So mm. there's a couple ways to approach it. Um, the best way, in my opinion, to identify what is lacking or what is excessive is to do a tissue test. And a tissue test is a fairly um, routine test. It's been used historically um, and is, is you're essentially taking leaf tissue off your flowers and you're sending it into a laboratory and they're doing a full mineral analysis of all the nutrients and what percentages that are in that plant. And then you compare it to um, target levels. And there's a book, a, there's a textbook I use called Plant Analysis Handbook 4 and it has target levels, tissue levels for, I mean, I'm looking at the cut flowers and there's- Oh, is there a section for cut flowers? Yeah, That's a, so unusual. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a whole section. I'm, I mean, there's probably- oh. 50 different species from, um, oh, perfect. Yeah. Well, actually, okay. I take that back. A lot of them are roses. <laughs> um, <laughs> See that. Welcome to my world, right? Yeah, yeah, welcome yeah. to my world. <laughs> the only flowers anybody ever talks about is roses. Roses, roses, roses. So, but there's other stuff. And, and honestly, if we really dove into all of the cut flowers, um, there could be a pattern across flowers, across mm. species. I'm not sure. I don't know flowers well enough. But the idea is that you can pretty quickly identify what the plant is lacking. And the beauty of the test is, um, you know, they're, they're all feeding from the soil, but mm -hmm. ultimately the plant doesn't lie. And so it's, it's like the final test is like the nutrient sufficiency in the plant. So I'm a huge fan of using a combination of tissue tests and soil tests to identify what's missing and applying just those nutrients in the exact quantity in the right form at the right rate, at the right time. Um, so a little bit more precision. And ultimately that's like how mo most people are having the greatest success in organic production. So where are you getting your tissue tests done? Because that's, for the record, it's not nearly as common in flower farming to mm -hmm. do tissue testing as it is in veg and cannabis and, and some of the others. So uh, consider us all newbies. Where do you get your tissue testing done? <laughs> yeah, so, I, so I do all of my testing, tissue and soil and uh, water through Logan Labs. Uh, yeah. And Good. the reason I use Logan is, um, well... The re let me say the reason I only use one lab and I is because all labs have slightly different protocols on how they deal with samples and then their equipment and how they process. And so numbers are never apples to apples. Unfortunately, it's one of the most annoying things. So I sort of have to stick with one lab to, to make sure all of the data and the protocols are consistent. And so I can work with, you know, consistent data. Um, but there's a number of labs that do tissue testing. I will say I'm very partial to Logan Labs when it comes to their soil testing, but when it comes to tissue, I'm a little bit more agnostic um, because it's it's there's less variability between labs. The okay. protocols on how you run a tissue test should be pretty standard. Okay. And do you think it's helpful if we choose a lab that's more nearby us for in terms of like getting the tissues there faster or does that not, it's just overnight no matter what? So. Yeah, you know, I, with tissue testing, 
so there's actually two different kinds of plant testing. There's tissue testing and then there's plant sap analysis, which is like a mm. whole other world of high precision nutrient management um, that I don't think applies to growers who are small. I think it's like a, if, mm -hmm. if you had, if you had a hundred acres of a single species yeah. crop, I think it's a, an amazing test, but it is a massive financial investment and it's, it just takes a lot of buy-in. So tissue testing for small growers, um, speed of speed doesn't actually matter because the nutrients oh. aren't actually lost. And what they're doing is they're dehydrating the leaves when they get to the lab and doing a full nutrient analysis. So if the leaves dehydrate a little bit in the mail, it's no big deal. Now, if they're sitting there for weeks rotting, that's a different thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, ideally not that. <laughs> and it doesn't need to be close by. I'd say that okay. the close by labs is just, um, you get data faster. So if it gets mm. there faster, you get answers faster and you can make a management decision faster, but otherwise no big deal. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. I keep, I, I'm going to confess, I've never done a tissue test, even though it's been on my to-do list for at least five years now. So, you know, it's well, just one of those things that I never get around and, to. And you know I think a point where if there's not targets, it's a little bit trickier. So yeah, but I've often mean, thought yeah. I should start so that there would be targets, you know, like it, somebody has to, um, create the the tide you know you yeah, gotta you yeah. gotta start it somehow and if enough of us um send in tissue tests then somebody's got to start figuring yeah, it out absolutely. And I, would help, <laughs> I would help dissect it with you and just try to make some yeah um some guesses so okay so tissue testing and then i also am a huge believer in um soil testing your standard soil test is a uh, is just a is exactly that it's called it's usually called a standard soil test and it's mm -hmm. typically uh like a 25 dollar test and it's a strong acid extraction where they extract all the theoretically available nutrients from your soil using a extractant called like malic three and mm -hmm. it's sort of like um and a malic three solution by the way has a ph of 2.5 so you're seeing big numbers on these soil tests but it's not in it and it i compare it to maybe um, all the nutrients in your bank account that are theoretically available to you over the next 20 years that biology is slowly mineralizing and at different times of year and at different temperatures making available to your plant. But at any one time, those nutrients are definitely not available to your plant. So I also utilize what's called a saturated paste test, which um, looks at what's in the soil solution. So that water in the pore space that we were talking about earlier is mm -hmm. has a very low um, concentration of, of nutrients. And so the pace test is looking at that. It's like, what is, what's available to the plant roots right now today. And so there's like these two tests, one's looking at what's theoretically available over the long term, And what's looking at one's looking at what's available right now to the plant. And the reality is actually somewhere in the middle because plant roots are exuding acidic compounds that are making nutrients more available. But in my opinion, uh, the reality is closer to that pace test. So I like to see both of those tests and I, I sort of put more weight on the soil solution and the solubility of nutrients to identify what's low and what's high. And um, there's no like perfect way to analyze that test, but I've, I've looked at about 10,000 of these different soil tests <laughs> from Logan Labs. And so I have a really good sense of when things are really low and when things are really high. Um, okay. doesn't matter what the crop is. If you have like one part per million of potassium in your soil solution, that's too low for any crop, especially, I mean, flowers, they're producing mm -hmm. seeds, they're flowering literally. So, yeah. um, there are certain nutrients that just have to be above sufficiency levels. So between the tissue test and the standard slash paste soil test, I really do think 
um, I don't want to call it easy, but it's fairly straightforward to identify what should be applied. And so instead of liquid fish, you might choose, you might see that potassium or calcium is a limiting factor. You might apply gypsum and potassium sulfate, both certified organic products, really inexpensive and much more precise than liquid fish. Nice. I, lo I love that you're um, giving us the idea of the uh, PACE test because I think that's something a lot of people don't even know that's an option. So good to know. That's, a, that's one to um, add to the list of things to do. stick with nitrogen for just a little bit to tease it apart and then I definitely want to talk about calcium because that is such an important nutrient in flower growing in particular and one that is totally underrated but for now nitrogen 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 uh so so there's there's nitrogen but then there's also ammonium there's nitrate and there's nitrite so can you break this down in fairly simple terms for everybody yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> so so in so there nitrogen is a very unique and complicated nutrient because it's the only nutrient that has multiple plant available forms so for calcium the only plant available form is the calcium ion calcium 2 plus and every other nutrient more or less is like that except nitrogen nitrogen the plant can actually uptake um three different forms of nitrogen. It can uptake ammonium, um, which is the, the one form of nitrogen. It can uptake nitrate, NO3 minus, and it can uptake uh, organic nitrogen compounds such as amino acids. And so um, in the soil at any one time, all three of those forms exist. But the, but the reality is there's a nitrogen cycle that's happening where when a when any biomass or organic amendment or manure or compost goes into the soil it's in um, organic nitrogen form that's not plant available and the microorganisms in the soil enzymatically digest those products and break them into amino acids so now uh, the amino acids are slightly plant available and the plant might be uptaking amino acids but the microbes very quickly take those amino acids and they eat them and digest them and turn them into ammonium. There's a very specific set of microbes um, that, are, that are turning organic forms of nitrogen into ammonia. And then another form, another set of microbes takes that ammonium and, and converts it into nitrate. And all three of those forms, like I said, are available to the plant, um, but plants generally prefer nitrate versus ammonium. High ammonium soils are not optimal. Um, not only is there a lot of nitrogen loss happening out of the soil when, when in that phase of the nitrogen cycle, but plants, generally speaking, unless we're talking about, um, there's, a, there's a few very sort of like boggy, wet, loving plants that like ammonium. For the most part, the flowers, veggies, fruit trees are going to prefer nitrate. In conventional production, you can apply nitrate as mm -hmm. calcium nitrate or ammonium nitrate or um but in organic farm in organic farming the nitrogen amendments and the manure and the compost have to go through that nitrogen cycle and nitrate is that last 
uh, step. So it doesn't necessarily influence what products we use other than to say that it's good to let your, if you're making a heavy nitrogen application, it's good to let um, those amendments break down before planting. That's one takeaway. Um, the other is particle size matters. So if you're using a, a liquid or a powdered product, it's going to end up as nitrate a lot faster than if you're using a, a larger um, particle size product. And the final thing I'll say is there's a lot of products that are marketed as amino acids and I use them. I use like a soluble soybean meal. It's, a, it's like a so mm -hmm. soluble amino acids. Um, there's a lot of other liquid products that are soluble amino acids and they're really good for feeding. Um, but the video I just made on Instagram, actually, that you probably saw is <laughs> that those amino acids are going to get um, essentially converted through the nitrogen cycle and end up as nitrate probably before the plant is accessing them mm. as amino acids. So the vast majority of nitrogen taken up by plants um, is in the nitrate form. So I don't know if that was helpful. Or no, no, super helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm not sure that everybody who's listening realized that there's three, essentially three forms of nitrogen taken up by the plant. And they just, maybe a lot of people were thinking, oh, it's just nitrogen, period. Uh, that's a, a great explanation. And then I'm going to dive a little deeper and say, so, okay, so we've got the fish emulsion. I'm just going to pick on fish emulsion because it's so ubiquitous in um, small scale yeah, yeah. flower farming. There's obviously, I, I personally use a lot more feather meal and um, uh, composted chicken pellet, you know, like kind of um, leftover from the poultry industry. But um, so if we decide to foliar feed fish emulsion, so that's putting on that. How let me let me phrase this. Let me like figure out how to say what I'm trying to ask. How does the plant get that to be nitrate at some point? Do they do their yeah. own breakdown process or is it the microbes on the leaf surface? Like what's going on there? That's a great question. So when it comes to foliars, um, in general, amino acids are far more plants available than ammonium. And in organic ag, we're not applying straight nitrate. So mm -hmm. when we apply it, uh, and you're talking about liquid fish, right? Yeah, liquid like fish. Liquid yeah, fish yeah. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. So like Neptune's fish. Harvest or something yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Dram. I mean, yeah. I like this product called Oceanic Hydrolysate. Yeah. There's a bunch of products. So yeah. um, that's primarily ammonium, and it's not going to be uptaken nearly as efficiently as an amino acid form of nitrogen. Um, so what's happening is some of that's getting converted on the leaf surface, on the phyloplane. Um, but a lot of it's just entering the plant as ammonium, and then the plant actually converts it internally. Um, it has its own nitrogen fixation process that that um, happens that's very complicated. Hmm. And so liquid fish, it's interesting, liquid fish may be having a beneficial effect more from a biostimulant level. Yeah, as I was well going to say, is it the level. microbes then, really, that we're, we're really kind of feeding microbes as much as anything yeah, at that point? Yeah, I mean, to me, liquid fish is not the best nitrogen Foliar. Okay, good. I think the best nitrogen foliar organically is an amino acid product for sure. Like okay. A, like what, uh, either an amino fish product. I mean, the, there's a lot of like um, fish ferments. Mm -hmm. Sounds gross, but like in Korean natural farming, there's a yep. lot of like um, fish, it's called FAA, mm -hmm. fish amino acids. And they're great in foliar. I also think um, like a soluble soybean meal or any kind of amino acid product is better if you're trying to hit, hit it with nitrogen. Um, the secondary effects of fish may be sort of 
Um, they trigger certain biochemical pathways that aren't really easily understood. I, I think of biostimulants not necessarily as biologicals, but as products that trigger biochemical pathways um, that have some kind of beneficial effect. So most of it to me is most um, biostimulants as a category, I think are snake oil, but there are no doubt true uh, biostimulants that actually work. The one that I think of is like a North Atlantic kelp. Mm, so yeah. kelp, like, it's been proven over and over as it, it does magical things that can't really be described nutritionally. Yeah. Yeah. They can't really be described biologically. So there's, they're triggering some kind of biochemical pathway. Fish, I think, might have a little bit of that effect. But if I'm trying to get nitrogen, I'm going to be foliar feeding amino acids personally. Okay. Um, That's good to know. I had not, I mean, I know about amino acids, but I had never thought about switching out fish for an amino acid product instead. Yeah. That for makes foliar, good sense. That's what I would do. Now, if personally, and everyone has a different style of growing, I, used to be really into foliars, but I've backed off a little bit because I'm a huge believer that plants evolved, you know, uptaking nutrients to their roots. So if I see a nitrogen deficiency visually on a tissue test or on a soil test, I'm going to be doing a liquid drench to the soil mm. um, or like a fertigation event. And I think there's, if you really need like an emergency treatment, or if you're just trying to, there's something about foliars that like, it keeps um, metabolism kind of cranking, mm -hmm. just like, yes. Yes. Plants pray a little bit. It just kind of, they just <laughs> like foliars. Yeah. It's, it's weird. It is weird. So, <laughs> I'm not against it, but if you look at, you know, leaf tissue analysis of a cannabis plant, you want 5% of the leaf to be nitrogen, which is actually a lot. Hmm. And um, to get five, to get that nitrogen through foliar would be nearly, I mean, like- It's to just do too much. Math, yeah. It's, okay. yeah it's, it's just like- mathematically impossible. So the, the vast majority of nitrogen uptake is happening um, from the roots. And honestly, I've grown extremely healthy crops without a single foliar spray. Okay. Vegetables, tomatoes, cannabis. I mean, so yeah. but I think foliars are great, but I'm more of a fan of foliar applications for micronutrients that I need, like I need to jam into the plant immediately. And I want to skip all of the complicated soil interactions that may be happening. Mm. Yeah. I I have to say that I am a big fan of foliar, but I like everything you just said, and you might be convincing me. I've been toying with putting in a fertigation system. I do drip um, irrigation, so putting in fertigation would be easy. But I'm, I'm going to say why I like fo uh, foliar feeding, and it's because it's not necessarily foliar feeding. I like to um, douse the plants every, like, once a week with... Um, worm uh vermicast extract so it's a you know fresh worm casting tea essentially uh i like to put some lab on there i'm a korean natural farming um person over here uh so i like to do lab so basically a lot of times when i'm putting stuff on the leaves it's for the biology i want to add it's for the good biology to combat we have powdery mildew is a huge issue in flower farming um a lot of dampening off diseases fusarium pythium and stuff like that and so uh, particularly the vermicast extract Extract, the worm tea has been scientifically shown to really help with disease management. So for me, it's just about getting those um, auto-inducers on the leaf surface a lot of times. And then I'm like, oh, let me put in some kelp. Let me put in some JLF. You know, I'm always just adding, I call it my witch's brew. I just kind of put, yeah, yeah. put a little bit of everything in there. <laughs> no, that's extremely compelling. I think my yeah. lens is from a nutrient standpoint. Mm. But but if, if we're talking like disease suppression and yeah. biological competition and all the things you just said, I'm, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I love that. I mean, I'm, I have these, 
I'm building these things called Johnson Soup bioreactors. Oh, you are? Oh, I'm going to have to watch with fascination. I want one so bad. (laughs) This fungal-rich compost. Like, really, I mean, it seems to be the most consistent, um, easy way to create a high fungal compost. I'm going to create an extract from that. And absolutely, that extract is gone via foliar. Um, And... Yeah, there's foliars. I think what you just said is is definitely um, right on point. Yeah, I, it, they have their place, but they are time consuming. I'm not going to lie. I definitely, you know, have to spend a good bit of time. And I think fertigation maybe could help take, maybe I could do like every other week instead of every week. I don't know. You know, with farming, it's always just this dance to decide what's efficient, what's effective. um, What do you like to do? Because I also like to foliar feed. Another reason is because it just, it gives me a bonafide excuse to walk around and look at every single plant on my farm once a week. (laughs) There's something satisfying too about getting, you know, like somehow getting all those micro... Mm -hmm droplets on the plants. I love spray. I I don't like spraying chemicals for the record. I don't spray anything um, that kills stuff at my farm. I only spray things that um, bring life. And it's just, ah, man, it just makes me happy. It's my happy place. (laughs) And here's the other thing about liquid foliar feeding fish. I like foliar feeding things that smell good. Like, (laughs) you know, like really plant, like wonderful plant-based surfactants and, and, you know, but fish, I've had some rough experiences with wind going in the wrong direction. Oh yeah. Fish. So I've gone to the grocery store after spraying, forgetting that I had sprayed and then literally watching people come closer and then kind of backing away and taking their cart to the other aisle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, like, ooh, okay, that lady, she's she's not clean. Yeah, yeah. So so are most of these flowers full Mm -hmm. season or are they like quick? We do a combination in flower farming. We'll have a lot of perennials that are, um, they have a flowering window that's two to three weeks maybe, and then the plant's there and trying to keep it healthy and productive, um, like you know, long-term photosynthesis and stuff like that. But then we also do a lot of annual production and there's some, you know, kind of churn and burn annual production crops that maybe have a 60 to 90 day window. Um, And so we're just putting on growth really fast with those, cutting them, then they're done. And then we flip the bed um, and do some others. So it really depends. The, The thing about um, cut flower production is that we may, I would suggest we are the most diversified um, plant species ki- kind of farming there is in that we, the plant families are numerous <laughs> and each one has its own thing that it wants. So <laughs> makes it tricky. Okay. Yeah. I was just thinking, I, the reason I asked that question is just kind of thinking of fertigation. I'm a huge mm-hmm. fan of fertigation because I think it gives so much more control. It also just gives as a, you know, as a grower, it's just more tools in the toolbox. You have very mm-hmm. immediate, fast-acting ways to um, provide nutrition to your plants. That's more effective than than just foliars. I think foliars are great, but if you're really needing to feed a plant, I think fertigation is amazing. Um, obviously, it depends on the size and the scale of your farm. So, like if it's if it's pretty quick to dren- do drenches by hand, then obviously it's not necessary. Um, but I think it gives a lot of power to nutrient management, especially if you start trying to get into the more precision stuff where you're Mm. testing and then applying specific um, products for specific nutrients. I think, I think fertigation is awesome. But again, if you can, if you can take, if it takes 20 minutes to go spread or top dress or side dress something, then maybe it's not necessary. 
Yeah, it, it's I mean, it's to each their own, too, as well as like what's the most effective for them. But I, I you're not the first person who's mentioned fertigation this season in the podcast. And every time I'm like, yeah, I should really get on. That. Yeah. <laughs> so. well, I, mean, I mean, sometimes less is more, too. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I like to hope and think that I have this soil. I mean, it's taken me I've been no till for six seasons now. Um, and that time, you know, I've really focused on building soil health, soil biology, you know, really laying on as much as I can in that compartment and uh, doing cover cropping. So I like to think that my soil is is humming along now and there's a really good chance that, you know, the minerals are getting released naturally. But obviously I still see nutrient deficiencies. So there's something, something that needs to be tweaked out there. I am curious, though, of your thoughts on the idea that, you know, not the idea, the reality that um, the microbes eat first in the soil and then, you know, what's left is maybe what your plants get and then ultimately Ultimately, yeah, when the microbes die or they poop or all the things they do, your plant can get the nutrients, but it's that's a process. That's, you know, so with fertigation, do you see quick turnaround in deficiencies or is that something you got to wait a couple weeks now? Yeah. So, so the, the reason that it's faster is not the, like um, in conventional farming, you use these nutrients that are completely soluble and don't need any microbial action. They just boom, they're available to the roots right away. Calcium nitrate, great example. In organic farming, fertigation is available for a totally different reason. And that's that in liquid form, the particles are so small that the microbes convert them really, really fast. So mm. if you think about like, um, yeah, the availability is just so much better. And the other thing is some products require microbial mineralization, nitrogen products, a lot of phosphorus products, um, the, you know, the fish products, mm -hmm. all the meals, anything that ends in meal requires the microbes to, to break it down. But a lot of organic products that end in sulfate, like, like calcium sulfate, gypsum, yeah. um, magnesium sulfate, Epsom salt actually don't require any microbial activity. They're really? soluble in water. So yeah, they dissolve, they dissociate, the ions oh. dissociate, the magnesium ions and sulfate ions, both are plant available immediately. So it kind of depends on the nutrient, but in general, if we're going to talk about the, the ones that do require microbial mineralization in liquid form, the particle size is so small that it happens like very, very fast. Oh, um, okay. Hours, hours and oh. may, maybe days. But if you put it in alfalfa meal, right. you're talking like weeks. So there's this like lag effect where if you top dress alfalfa meal or fishbone meal or um, even feather meal, even though I, I like feather meal too, it's it's relatively fast on the on the scale of nitrogen products, but it's still, if you're going to top dress, it's still going to have a lag. Yeah, I guess that's where I'm always coming from is the, I'm just like a dry amendments girl. And so that was, it does, I have to like basically amend this year for next year. You know, like I'm always yeah. like thinking like, oh, what what, what are my plants going to need? And, well, and I mean, I, think, I think it depends on uh, mostly temperature. So if you're, mm. if you're like amending in the spring and your soils are so cool, then yeah, it, there's a long lag. And yeah. I actually think that's one of the limitations in organic farming. And another reason that liquids are great is um, your nitrogen sometimes isn't available when the plants really need it early in the season when the soils are cold. Um, phosphorus mobility is the same way. So mm -hmm. I think drenching early when, you're, when your soils are a little colder, um, there's a lot of benefit there because then the rest of the season when it's warm, there's a lot of mineralization happening. I've seen in, in uh, when the soils are warm, let's just say the air temps like 70 degrees, 80 degrees, and the soil's moist, those, all those meals will 
go through the entire nitrogen cycle and be plant available as nitrate within like two weeks. Oh, but really? Cold, yeah, definitely. Wow. Um, yeah, it's quick, but, but that's when it's really warm. It's in the middle yeah. of the summer. Okay. And so usually, you know, nitrogen deficiency happens either early when the soils are cold or late when the, the plants are, are putting on a lot of growth and they've depleted the little mm-hmm. rhizosphere area of the soil and, and they just need more for, you know, their metabolic functions. So um, anyway, I don't know where we started. With oh, that, no, but... I'm glad you mentioned that, too, because um, a lot of flower growers, just like veggie growers, are growing um, through the winter, not not for production, but they've got plants in a high tunnel that's unheated. Mm-hmm. And so it's cool soil. And mm-hmm. I've noticed um, in my experience, and this is just a shout out to listeners who maybe are newer and haven't noticed this yet, but have their first new high tunnel. Um, in February and March, almost always, without fail, there seems to be a phosphorus deficiency yeah. in my crops. And in the past, I used to like panic and be like, oh, no. And now you're you're not going to be surprised, right? <laughs> I have a phosphorus like excess through the roof at this point because I kept adding phosphorus before yeah, I understood right, right. that like no the soil biology is slowed down it's cool soil um yeah. you know and I wish I had better better understood like what was happening there so you're saying that if I had fertigated with some liquid phosphorus um at that point that would have been a better option yeah you will definitely definitely would have been a better option I'm just trying to think though I'm not sure with nitrogen, 100%. I'm thinking about phosphorus to hands. Yeah. I'm not sure if it would have solved the problem. It, eh. Well, okay, first off, in organic production, there's not that many liquid phosphorus yeah. options. There's really the only option I recommend is a, is a high phosphorus fish product called CFOS. It's like a 170. But uh, I don't know how it got certified, honestly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it seems like... <laughs> Well, how does any phosphorus product get certified anymore? But yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, um, but it's it's very effective and it's mm. it's a good source. It's a fit, it's fish based. Okay. But besides that, I mean, the only other thing I might mention is like a phosphorus solubilizing bacteria. But honestly, mm. again, temperature dependent, so it's yeah. not necessarily solubilize a lot when the, the soil's cold. I do think fertigation would have been a better option, but I ultimately think you're limited by soil temperature. Yeah, I t- I've um, taken to. Um, in the past, I just added phosphorus. Um, but now I've taken to that foliar feeding process of I use bat guano um, uh-huh. when I can get it, the dissolvable, soluble bat yeah, guano. That, that's actually, that's, that's yeah. a good source. And that tends to perk them up. But regardless, they just, there's one of the crops that we grow a lot of, um, flower farmers grow a lot of in the cool weather is snapdragons and snapdragons they just always for me they always seem to have a phosphorus issue this time of the year when it's cold so so yeah. but well, I mean, yeah. the other thing is you probably i don't it depends on how you're seeding things but um like a black fabric mm. yeah i don't know if you're seeding in, in line i mean it's probably more cl- it's more bunched clustered yeah, um, it, a lot of people do grow in in um, black landscape fabric. I am not one of them, but um, yeah, I just got to come up with more ways to warm or just be patient. You know, like at the end of the day, yeah. being patient yeah. is, is also okay. Yeah, um, a, that, that actually, that example is a really tough one, but I think you're right on. I think a, a, a high phos guano or, a, or like a CFOS, high phosphorus fish yeah. would be the only things that I would recommend. And honestly... It's yeah. Phosphorus can any nutrient can be excessive, um, and it's sort of species dependent. 
on, on a small scale, I mean, on a large scale, using too much phosphorus is totally irresponsible, but on a small mm -hmm. scale, I don't think it is. I think that these diversified, you know, no-till farms are, aren't leaching, aren't creating like massive yeah. die-offs in the Gulf of Mexico. So I'm not too worried about that, but phosphorus is one of the nutrients that if it's, if it's excessive, um, usually depending on the species, it's not a huge, it's not a big deal. It can get to the point where it starts to antagonize the uptake of other nutrients, specifically zinc, iron, and manganese. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're not seeing, especially on a tissue test or visually, if you're not seeing those deficiencies, then honestly, it's probably serving you pretty well to have very luxury levels of phosphorus. <laughs> I think I think it did hit my manganese for a while, but I've 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 rectified the situation. And for okay. the record, I think my high phosphorus ultimately came from using too much compost uh, in a no-till oh. situation, a heavy manure compost that I would buy in that um, was made with lots and lots and lots of manure. Uh, so I learned my lesson over time, as we all do just you know as it goes oh, that's that's actually another good point on phosphorus um dynamics um so phosphorus is very immobile in the soil profile so certain nutrients will are very mobile Nit nitrate is one chloride sulfate all of these will are very mobile so they'll work their way down through the soil profile with uh moisture with water percolation um certain nutrients are totally immobile in the soil and phosphorus is one of them. Mm. And so in no-till systems, when heavy phosphorus is applied, um, you can, you can often create stratification. Yes. So like really high phosphorus levels, um, in the top of your soil. So let's just say the top two inches. And so there might be, um, let's say 2000 pounds per acre of phosphate measured in the top two inches. But if you go down another four inches, it might be one tenth or one twentieth that level. And so while the majority of nutrient uptake happens in the, in the top layer of soil, I do think it would be beneficial to get phosphorus more evenly distributed through the soil profile, just because that's more um, surface area for your roots to uptake it. Yeah. And then the, the second thought on that is, um, nutrients are actually uptaken through different mechanisms in the rhizosphere. And I believe phosphorus is one that's taken up through um, mass flow. No, sorry, diffusion. And so um, there's a, the mechanism of diffusion is a little bit different than how most nutrients are taken up. And so that stratification issue is actually uh, exacerbated. It's made worse because of because it, it requires diffusion. So um, the roots that are below that stratification layer in the low phosphorus environment are gonna have a way, way, way harder time, like an order of magnitude harder than if than in a higher phosphorus environment. Um, so that so that's just like two dynamics that are very unique to phosphorus that could be making that issue worse. Oh wow. I am so glad I talked about phosphorus. <laughs> This is so yeah, helpful to know. Is, phosphorus is like also really unique and complicated, like nitrogen. Yeah, um, it is. Some of the other nutrients are so straightforward, but phosphorus and nitrogen, organically specifically, are yeah. are complicated. I, I can share this chart with you after the podcast okay. of which nutrients that the mass flow diffusion and intercepted root growth chart. It's like such a cool chart that yeah. you never really see, and it's such a gem, so I'll send it to you. Oh, cool. Thank you. And while we're on the topic of um, mineral or nutrient stratification, because so many people listening to this podcast are no-till growers, I would like to just 
you know, tap that one more time, so to speak, and say, um, I had a podcast a couple episodes back about the deep mulch system and some of the pros and cons of it. And one of the cons can be that you're just layering compost on top of compost on top of compost. Um, And I did deep mulch um, no-till beds for three seasons at my farm. And that's when I started to notice what is, I now know, stratification at the time. I was just like, this is weird. My soil tests have this, but I'm noticing that. Um, And so just it's a cautionary word, I suppose, to say that if you're using dry amendments, and please chime in, Brian, you know, like if you're using dry amendments and you're just kind of layering them over the top of the soil over and over again and you don't work them in at all, you can end up with this, you know, sort of lasagna of uh, mineral nutrients at the top that don't go anywhere um, further down through there. Yeah, yeah, it's something to be aware of. Now, that said, it's a a very technical uh, nuance, and I think soil temperature is probably the bigger factor. Okay. That's probably what ultimately matters. Stratification is important to be aware of. And I think that if you're applying a lot of phosphorus every so often, as long as it's not, you know, yeah, it might be a good idea to do an incorporation event every 10 years to just really okay. like mix and flip and you'll have to rebuild that structure. But I think it might be worth it from a nutrient standpoint, if you're using either a lot of lime mm. um, or, or, Phosphorus, soft rock phosphate, bone meals, high phosphorus compost. Um, those two, those two products or, or nutrients are most likely to create stratification. The issue with lime is if you have a, a low pH soil and you lime it, you may change the soil pH in the top few inches, but you may have a pH of seven on top and a pH of five point one mm. below that, and that's super problematic. I'm going to jump to calcium because this is one of the things that I have personally struggled with in the past and still still do. (laughs) Not going to lie. Um, So I'm going to set the stage here for a second in that. um, So, Brian, the calcium is so important to all sorts of plant growth. But for flowers in particular, when we're cut flower farmers, we want this very sturdy stem. And if that stem is wonky or breaks easily or whatever, then the value of that flower is drastically diminished. And so this is why calcium is what makes good strong stems. And I wanted to talk a little bit more deeply about calcium in terms of what are good calcium sources? What are the right levels of calcium? Um, for me personally, in my soil testing, I'm finding that other excess nutrients are tying up calcium. Um, and also just, you know, which calcium to use based on your pH. So can we unpack yeah. that together yeah. a little bit? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a great, so, yeah, calcium's a funny one because it's like, yeah, it's very, I think it's, it's uh, kind of, underappreciated, underrated across a lot of crop types. It's extremely important for like dozens of metabolic and physiological functions. And so when it comes to, so, so in general, if I see a soil pH below six, I want to apply a calcium source that raises the pH. And that's either um, high calcium ag lime, which is calcium carbonate. I never Oh, well, that's true. I very, very rarely recommend dolomitic lime. Mm-hmm. I would steer your listeners away from dolomitic lime unless you have a very good agronomic analysis. So high calcium ag lime and you lime your soil 
up to 6.5 is usually a good target number. Doesn't really matter. I think when you're in the sixes, it's fine. Um, and I, I mean, my pH is 8.2. So oh like you, can grow, <laughs> you can grow really healthy crops to really, really high, pretty much to 8.2. Um, and that's like, and then um, the other source that I would recommend to raise the pH, if you're just trying to raise it a little bit and you're trying to raise it very slowly is a product called Wollastonite. It's actually mm. called, it's calcium silicate. Oh, I and don't know this one. Yeah, it has like 80% of the line, the um, power of aglime, but it's bringing in available silica, which is a, is a non-essential but highly beneficial plant nutrient important in abiotic stress resistance and disease yeah. suppression. It strengthens the cell wall, so it's harder for fungal hyphae like powdery mildew to, to puncture the cell wall. Um, so silica, yeah. So that's just kind of a trick to get really inexpensive silica into your soil if you're, if you're increasing the pH. Okay, so most people... Um, don't have a low pH issue or they've already limed. And so then how do you feed calcium? That's actually the more important question because mm. liming is sort of a one-time event. Yeah. Um, maybe twice, maybe, you know, you test and you realize you need a little more, you do it again, but then you're done for a while. Yeah. So then it, you're pretty much left with, um, with gypsum. So gypsum is calcium sulfate and it's a mined mineral um, the program I would use honestly to push calcium into flowers is I would feed powdered gypsum mm -hmm. through the season. Um, so I, I would apply like a, a ton or two tons per acre of, which is a lot. That's a lot. Of, of gypsum <laughs> free plant. And that could be granular, but I would probably do powder. Um, one ton is definitely safe. Like even for salt sensitive crops, like one ton per acre. Yeah. And, for your listeners who aren't who are doing like more bed styles, you divide that number by 44 to get pounds per thousand square foot. So um, I can just do it real quick: 2,000 yeah, divided sure. by 44. That's like 45 pounds of gypsum per thousand square feet. And that's that still a lot. For the record, that sounds like a lot. And you don't think yeah. that's gonna burn? I mean, not that it burns. You know what I mean? Like it's not gonna it's like a like yeah. It, it'll increase the the calcium and the sulfur in the soil. Mm -hmm. So it's also the best source of sulfur, in my opinion. It's, I mean, you could use elemental sulfur, but it's better to just use gypsum. Mm -hmm. So it'll spike sulfur levels, which will spike the EC and the soluble salts. Mm -hmm. It's all kind of the same um, measurement. And so it'll create a little bit more what's called osmotic stress on the plants. It's just a little bit harder for the plants to uptake water because there's higher salt concentrations in the soil, um, sulfate specifically. Mm -hmm. But most plants really love sulfur mm -hmm. and there's no sulfur toxicity. Okay. So if you have a, I mean, since I don't know flowers, maybe cut that rate and start lower, but work your way up. I mean, okay. that's really how you want to get calcium into the plant. And is and this like an annual season thing or this is like a one-time thing? How, how often are we be, talking about? Yeah. Well, it tends to be annually. It kind of depends on what soil you have. So mm. um, soils that have a high cation exchange capacity um, tend to yeah, they can essentially you're going to be displacing magnesium and potassium with calcium. So you're like pushing those two nutrients off of the out of their parking spaces and you're replacing mm -hmm. it with calcium. So over time, you're going to shift the balance of your soil a little bit more toward calcium, but that's a very slow shift. And most soils that don't have a high CEC, um, that shift may not really happen. And really the goal is not so much balance as much as it is just giving, making sure there's available calcium in the soil through the entire season. And so to me, it's a, 
it's an annual application. Okay. Um, so yeah, gypsum in, in what would feel liberal. I mean, it's, that's like the highest rate besides soft rock phosphate. I don't, I don't really recommend, um, anything that high. Yeah, at, that, at, that, that seems rate. a lot to me, but I, I'm excited about this because I have a magnesium toxicity in my soil. Like I have such oh, high yeah, magnesium yeah. in my soil and I have a, for everybody and, and for your information too, uh, my pH is around like six, six or 6.6, 6.8. So, you know, I'm above, you know, I'm above, uh -huh. um, it's, you can't use lime. I can't exactly. use lime. So, so here's the solution to that. And this is really going to freak you out. Yeah. I would like well, do you get good winter precipitation where you live? Well, we've had eight inches of rain in January so far. So yeah, okay, we so do. We get I a lot. Do, I would do three tons per acre of gypsum in the fall. And what that will do is it'll push the calcium in through the soil. Yeah. And it'll just displace magnesium and it'll just, it'll replace <sighs> magnesium. And you have, but you have to do that every year for a while and you will shift your soil um, oh, I'm so excited. This is a, this yeah, is yeah, amazing yeah. because I've wanted to put more calcium on, but I am, it just seems intimidating every time I pile it on and pile it on, you know? So I'm, I'm glad yeah. to hear I that mean, that's really an option. A, it's the limitation of gypsum to me is more about cost. Yeah. Just from like a, from an operational yeah. standpoint, you, you know, everything costs money Yeah. and freight, especially these days costs a lot. So if you're shipping Three tons of, you know. Oh, I'm fortunate. I live close to my supplier, so okay, <laughs> I can awesome, just take my awesome. pickup truck there and, and yeah. load her up. So, so. Yeah, no, so I mean, how, the, the, it's pretty simple. How you mm -hmm. push calcium into any plant is hmm. with liberal applications of gypsum. I worked, just to give you a little bit of context too on the rates, in cannabis production, people are doing three, four, five tons per acre. And that's a heavy feeding plant, obviously different, yeah. but, but people are using four tons per acre in mango production and in wow. different tree fruit production and in veggie production in, I worked on in blueberries in Oregon and blueberries like a low pH. So you're not going to lime the soil because mm -hmm. that's going to pH up. And they were doing a ton per acre per year of gypsum. Um, wow. so they actually, no, 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 I'm sorry. They were doing every third year, they would take up the fabric. Yeah. And three tons. Three so, tons. Three tons. <gasps> wow. Well, anyway, so, right. okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing okay. I'll do for calcium is, um, and I know I was, I was sort of talking trash on nutritional foliars, <laughs> but I would do a calcium, um, a calcium foliar of an, of an amino chelated calcium product. There's two different brands. I don't really like promoting brands, but that's I'll all give right. you two. Okay. One's called Albion Metallisate. It's a certified organic um brand of of and you can you can get you you choose your specific nutrients so you would do okay. albion calcium okay and then the other is called biomin and so you can get these products and i would foliar i would there's no there's no uh there's no limit to the amount of of calcium you could foliar every other day if you wanted to okay that would be unreasonable but you you could and it would push it would, you're just trying to slam calcium into the system and then the final suggestion i have is boron is synergistic with calcium. And there's this little trick in the cannabis community when people have hollow stems um, to, to, to maximize the stem strength mm -hmm. and to minimize hollow stems and try to fill them in, the, the real trick is calcium and boron. So um, I would actually do a calcium boron foliar, which Albion sells a calcium boron combo. And I would do tons of gypsum. And then I would do, I would make sure based on a soil test that boron is, is sufficient. And if it's low, I would use 
um, either solubor or borax in really low concentrations. Yeah, That's really low. <laughs> like, yeah, really low. <laughs> 10 pounds per acre. So instead of 2,000 pounds, we're doing 10 pounds now. And because you can't, so per um, thousand square feet, we're talking about like two tenths a dusting a, a dusting yeah i i have boron toxicity because i use too much solubor uh, so well okay I, so boron is mobile so that should self-correct yeah. it should reach out yeah. over time yeah um and so and that there's no way to like dry apply it without with two tenths over a thousand square feet so you just you it's super soluble you put it mm -hmm. in water and you drench it that's how you yeah. evenly distribute it over the soil I, I'm so excited by what you just said, because you talked about hollow stems, and you don't know this, but everybody listening knows one of the biggest crops for most flower farmers doing what I do is dahlias, and dahlias have a hollow stem, and quite frequently an issue with dahlias is just that they flop over in storms yeah. or just like all the things. Another one is anemones. We also have challenging time with anemones. That's another crop. Um, and... I want to keep adding calcium, but always was like freaked out and was like, well, there's got to be a point where you like max this out, but it sounds like there's not. And yeah, I, there's, yeah. and I didn't know about that, that you could do the boron calcium together. And if there's a product mm -hmm. that already has it formulated, I'm on board with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do that. Yeah, do that. So if yeah. you do albium um, metallicate calcium boron okay. and, and just, there's no limit. You just, I mean, there's a limit to the rate. You, mm -hmm. you want to use the label rate, but mm -hmm. you can do it frequently. Mm -hmm. And then I would do um, maybe start at a thousand pounds per acre or 22 ish per thousand okay. square feet. And then work up to, and if everything, if, if the flowers are fine, I would mm -hmm. do a ton the next year. Okay. And then through the season, I would either drench or fertigate solution grade gypsum, which is this is powdered gypsum. And um, you really like, there's no such thing as a calcium toxicity. Okay. Um, you can create, you know, antagonisms, but not really. I mean, it's like, I've never seen that. I've never seen, I don't know if I want to say that, but I don't think I've ever seen a, like a calcium problem. Yeah. Usually it's always deficient. And then the, the final thing that I want to mention is calcium is taken up through the xylem. Um, and I so was going to ask you about this because it can't yeah, really so, move in the plant, right? So, like, yeah, so it's immobile in the plant yeah. for sure. And it's the only mechanism of uptake is through the xylem through transpiration. So, like, it just goes with the water stream essentially. So, like, when the when the plant uptakes water and there's calcium in the water, it goes up through the stem and is translocated into the leaves of the plant. And so, as soon as transpiration stops calcium uptake stops mm. and transpiration is a function of your soil moisture. So you, that's another reason you want consistent soil moisture. And it's a function of, um, it's called vapor pressure deficit, which is like the humidity. So mm -hmm. if, it's, if it's super humid, um, the, the transpiration goes down and therefore the calcium uptake decreases. So if you've ever grown tomatoes or peppers that get blossom end rot, it's a calcium deficiency and it's not, usually because of not enough calcium in the soil, it's usually due to um, inconsistent watering or super low transpiration rates as a function of yeah. 
I'm over here grinning um, because this is what happens for Dahlia production in particular. This is a plant that doesn't like to get super hot, but a lot of us, I'm just speaking for myself, I'm in Philadelphia. It is like the steamy jungle of the world when it comes to August um, in the high of summer. So our dahlias tend to shut down in terms of like they close their stomata, they just go into this like, oh God, let's just survive phase. And I noticed so many um, deficiencies at that time that are no doubt because the the transpiration is not happening as much. And so I'm going to jump here and say that foliar feeding at that time would be helpful, correct? Mm -hmm. In terms of putting calcium on the leaves so they can just absorb it right there. And especially I, the buds I, I too. I think so. I yeah. think so. Okay. Um, yeah, I think foliars and then, I mean, Gypsum. <laughs> More gypsum. Though, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a joke. But I'm, it's kind of not a joke. Yeah. Like just slam the gypsum. Yeah. All um, right. I will be doing. I will be testing that this season. I'm gonna. Yeah. I'm all in. I'm. I'm so sick of the high magnesium in my soil that just seems to be this continuous. I don't know where the high magnesium came from. I'm assuming it's the parent rock. It's just the parent I, material of your soil. Yeah, yeah, and it's just this thing that I just can't shake this monkey off my back, and I'm so sick of it because it is definitely a limiting factor to. Have you gotten a soil test? Like, could you tell me the percent magnesium? Uh, I have one on somewhere right test. next to me, or not right next to me, actually. But I Overall, will. I will. Uh, I worked in, yeah, I've worked in soils in specifically in a part of Oregon. Hmm. Um, very weird pocket of geology and they're called serpentine and serpentine soils have like 50% saturation of magnesium. Yeah. Optimal magnesium I think I do have a serpentine soil. It's okay. like so you, a yeah, mineral a rock serpentine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're a candidate for massive amounts of fall gypsum applications. Okay. And I'm talking, I said three. I mean, yeah, I, probably higher than, probably higher than that. Okay. Um, you want, yeah. I mean, well, it's good to hear because I feel I'm just I'm so like bearing my soul here, but I've always felt a bit like a failure in some ways with this capacity of the farm. There's so many other things that are humming along and are awesome, um, but I just have never been able to figure out how to solve this one. And I also felt like at some point I must have done something terribly wrong, and that's where the high magnesium came from. And I just learned this past year after talking to an NRCS agent that no, no, that's probably your parent rock under yeah, there. It's <laughs> It's, yeah, it's just kind of what you've been, yeah. um, the cards that you've been dealt. Yeah. I, I think the other way to think about it is you may never achieve balance, mm. like a perfectly balanced soil. And so, and so, for example, I have a calcareous, a calcareous soil, mm. which has the opposite issue. It's, um, it has like 10,000 pounds of free lime. I have 90% calcium saturation. Whoa. Um, it's all, it's like serpentine, but for calcium and it's not plants available either. It's in, it's in a, uh, it's in the form of lime calcium carbonate. And so, uh, and that's why my soil pH is 8.2 is it's like reached the asymptotic yeah. limit of soil pH. And so the, the way to think about these soils that are maybe never going to reach balance on a standard soil test from a, is to just manage the soil solution. So I would, um, I would still do that one ton or thousand pounds per acre pre-plant, but then I would, I would just try to be constantly flooding the soil solution with calcium. Hmm. And that's where that powdered gypsum and maybe that fertigation system comes in. It's just, it's like, you could do a continuous feed, um, of just 
a gram per gallon of gypsum to okay. every irrigation. And so you're just constantly, even though the, the bulk soil has way too much magnesium, what the plant roots see in the soil solution is, is constantly being um, saturated with calcium. And so you yeah. kind of nurse it along. And, yeah. you know, it sounds like a band-aid solution and it is, but ultimately if that's, what's going to give you the best crop health and the best strong dahlias, then yeah. do it. Yeah. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's just the root plant or the plants, <laughs> the roots of plants are just in the first couple inches of the soil anyway. So what do I need to sure. fix like, you know, four feet down below the ground? Exactly. <laughs> so uh, that was like super informative. I'm trying to think if I have any other final questions. Oh, uh, just in the calcium department. Uh, I'm curious because you seem very knowledgeable. Do you know what WCA is in Korean natural farming? Water soluble calcium. It's an extract made from eggshells. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's what I use as just my basic foliar feed. Um, I was just curious if you had an opinion on it in terms of like when every week I put a little bit of um, WCA into my foliar. I have no problem with it's probably, I mean, that, that might be the highest quality calcium for all I know, mm. better than gypsum, better than it. But my, so I have no comments on the quality of the product okay. about testing it and playing right. it and stuff. But, but my biggest issue is quantity. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how much square footage or how many plants you're treating, but it's probably going to be hard to get enough calcium through. You probably just don't have enough eggshells. <laughs> Well, I eat a lot of eggs, but, <laughs> but yeah. yes, yeah, I, that's an interesting point. I have never done an analysis on the WCA, and I, I wonder if anybody has. I'm going to have to go dig dig up some yeah, books. I mean, I would, if, if you want to do that, I would actually pay for it because I'm curious, and I'm always trying yeah. to just learn about inputs, and I would be I would love to look at the results of that. Yeah. I think that what I'm trying to say is, for the, you know, for the size of your farm, it's mm -hmm. probably hard enough to produce enough of that. KNF product too. Yeah. I mean, it does, it's, yeah, I guess the question is how much should I be applying? So I will tell you that the ratio that I use is actually just a teaspoon of this WCA liquid to a gallon of water. And then okay. usually it takes for me to spray my whole farm, it's going to be about 15 gallons, maybe a little bit more than that. Depends what time of the year it is, honestly, how much, you know, canopy is out there um <clears throat> so i can i i eat a lot of eggs <laughs> but i i i can produce that much uh wca okay. but but now the big but is i don't a teaspoon for a gallon of water is just the recommended like what the knf you know right, guidebook right. says do i know how much actual calcium is in that teaspoon no i have no idea literally none totally. this is, so what i usually tell growers with any feed solution with any foliar solution if you're curious is you you send four ounces of i would do a concentrate if you can okay. spare that much yeah um to Logan Labs and have them run it as a pace test. Mm. And so they'll just tell you how many PPMs of all the nutrients are in that. And then you can do the math, you can reverse engineer the math based on your dilution, or you could do the opposite way. You could put a teaspoon per gallon and test that okay. and see how many PPMs of all the nutrients are in it. Point is you can just test all these products either in their concentrated or diluted forms just as a pace test. Because that's all that, that Logan is doing with your soil is they're 
taking your soil and combining your irrigation water and then they're extracting the water and testing that liquid yeah so you can just send, you can send any liquid huh. um yeah that's a cool idea i'm definitely doing that and then i've got all these yeah. other korean natural farming things i got to send into <laughs> You want to hear a really weird story. You might have to edit this one out. Oh, okay. I can always do that. Do tell the weird actually, story though. <laughs> so someone contacted me and was doing um, green burial. And so they were mm. um, essentially like liquefying people who had died, like as oh instead of God. cremation. Yeah. And they were going to, and they wanted to, they bought 40 acres and they wanted to like um, essentially fertilize the 40 acre forest. And I was like, that's so cool. That's that is amazing. so cool. But like, how? Like, well, yeah. So there, yeah, there are a lot of questions that I was trying to hold to myself. And so, um, and they were essentially like, is this a good fertilizer? And I said, well, we got to test it. So we ran a pace test. On it. No, you did not. Oh my God. Yeah, so I, I'm like, well, I've always wanted to know like what, cause I, I mean, I want to be buried and yes. I want the keystone tree species in my mm -hmm. area to be planted on top of me. Absolutely. I'm, like, oh, no. I'm a nutrient guy. What's in my body. But the, but, and so I got the pace test back and it was like, I've never been more eager to look at the test results. And it was, and like the, the pH was like 12, what? which is, which is like, uh, or just insanely high. I've never seen anything that's 12 and the potassium was toxic. And I'm thinking what, and it's because the, the solvent or the, you know, the, what they, they used to break down the body was like a potassium hydroxide. And so honestly, the solution was mostly the chemical and not the body oh. nutrients. So it was kind of, that's a womp womp moment. It like went from what? very sort of, I don't know, sort of special and, and yeah. a, such a cool thing to like, oh, that's weird. That is. And then it's like, what? Oh, like, is but that really is a good way? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's like, <laughs> so this is, this is a good fertilizer. I was like, no, it's a No, horrible. it's chemicals. It's like if, if you dilute it enough, yeah, it's no problem, but it's not like, it's not good. <laughs> So wait, now I really have to ask this question on your uh, uh, form that you sent into Logan Labs. What did you put on yeah. there? <laughs> like, do you just like unknown liquids? <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. Oh, that's yeah, too yeah, funny. Well, I, didn't, I mean, I, didn't, I don't know what they labeled it, but it, it was, I'm sure there could have been a clever right. New Yorker like, <laughs> comic about it. Yeah, it does seem like it. Well, I hope they figure out the green burial formula because I do. I as well. I mean, I'm all into the mushroom coffins right now, but who knows if that'll like pan out and be like the best option. But um, yeah, God forbid. I do know that I don't want any embalming fluids in me. That's for sure. But that's yeah, maybe. Yeah, I support it. But I was like, <laughs> yeah. but the point of this whole story, you can test anything. Anything. Right. <laughs> I think I am going to leave that story in for the record because that's that's yeah, pretty yeah, wild. <laughs> oh my gosh you are full of so much good information i want to ask you a million other questions but i'm going to stop for now because i think this is like a ton of good um food to chew on for all our listeners uh but i really might have to have you back sometime because you're so yeah, good sure. at ex yeah you're just really good at explaining stuff um taking the hard stuff and making it simple so thank you for that i really appreciate all your time and um everybody should find the soil doctor on instagram and follow you um because there's always more good information coming from you so thanks Brian. i appreciate it yeah thanks so much for having me Well, that wraps up another energetic episode of No-Till Flowers. 
I'm so grateful you tuned in and hope you got several new ideas that can help you farm more in step with nature. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Also, please take a second to rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow this show and let others know that it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, for his meticulous editing so you don't have to listen to too many of my outbursts of excitement and laughter. Also, gratitude goes to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. Until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil. Thank you.